Welcome to the Guardians of Fahal Campaign Diaries. Uh, today we're going to be uh, talking about Episode 7, Part 2. Oh boy. Last time we left off on a uh, bit of a cliffhanger with both twins being magically put to sleep by a satyr. Ooh, very, very bad. Um, and his goat and sprite friends. Um, so when I had originally come up with the plan for them to travel, I knew there was a bunch of like potential things that they could run into. And one of them was of course a satyr. If they would have stayed in Cutter's Grove for the night, they probably wouldn't have run into the satyr. But they uh, they did, they stayed outside. They didn't want to stay in a, fan a nice, the one inn in town. Um, so you know what? They got to got to fight a satyr, and it was fun. Um, overall, I thought the fight was really, really entertaining. Um, it was cool because for the first time, uh, Andrew used his channel divinity as an oath of the crown paladin. Um, apparently, it's a misprint because it technically should be a bonus action to activate it, uh, the challenge, like the compelled duel. But he did it as a free action, which I think going forward, I need to make him do it as a bonus action. Um, but you know, honestly, like as a paladin, it's not like he has bonus actions anyway, except for his charge feet. So, you know, it's, it's fine. I really liked seeing, uh, Christy's character get to have a little bit of combat as a guest star. That was fun. Christy about killed me with her, her using shatter on those two poor sprites and just exploding them and saying it was kitty litter. Goddamn. Like that was funny. Also like. One thing that I thought was uh, a little bit interesting was they just kind of all assumed that, like, the satyr was going to be um, content warning. Uh, very non-consensually grabbing and such, but um, that wasn't necessarily how I viewed him and I wanted to play him. Uh, I... <laughs> There's a lot of things in D&D that are, are problematic. Like, a lot of the charm abilities are very troubling, to be honest. Um, and I am fully aware of that. And that might be something that comes into play later. But I also don't... I, I know that, like... I know in mythology, satyrs and, like, a lot of the creatures from Greek mythology were very, very rapey. Like, I... I know that, but I don't necessarily like just including that because it's in the canon source. And also, I think forcing people to stay, like, and be, like, listen to a shitty pan flute music and keep them drinking is pretty miserable. I, I don't feel like I need to make him, like, a, uh, like a sexual assailant as well. Just just holding them against their will and, and making them listen to their really dumb music is probably bad enough. Uh... But yeah, so even though he was going to grab Una, like, and she was the girl and he said she was pretty, it was more of like, they, the fae like sparkly, shiny things and like having, you know, red hair is unique. So he's just like, yeah, take the redheaded one. And then we'll, she, she also killed our sprite friend. So she'll have to come hang out with us and be our new friend, whether she wants it or not. And I think that's still pretty horrifying. So, you know, happy that they killed him. Happy that like, you know, they, they defeated him and then that goat, holy crap. So I looked up how much meat you can get off of an average goat, which is like a large creature in D&D is, I think it's like 10 by 10 or like 10. 
Yeah, it's like, it's this big. And I'm like, a goat that size would have like 70 to 80 pounds of meat on it. So they're they're set for quite a while. And they, and they managed to find the satyr's hangout. So like, I kind of had a rough idea in my head of what this satyr's hangout would be. And I just kind of pictured like a secret tree house, um, which then it goes down to like a magical spring. Um, now this spring, actually, um, when I was coming up with Cutter's Grove, I wanted to have there be like stories. Like if they, if they had gone to the tavern or whatever and asked around, they would have found out that like the satyr's spring was like, or the spring was supposedly, um, there was a magical spring and people in the town, like, lived longer from drinking from this well. Like, this well was special. Um, but the spring actually goes underground in the well and it also feeds into the satyr's cave and then also creates, like, sort of like this weird celestial holy water, um, which can be very restful and have healing properties but then you also got the drunk berry trees which he definitely imported from the fey realm so like you got two cool things in there one for debauchery and one for healing because if you're gonna drink a lot you don't necessarily want the hangovers with it so that's what that water is for is to fix your hangovers um this kind of i talked about last episode they kind of were being really judgmental about this poor hunter who couldn't find the missing uh hunters and she's probably only like a level two ranger and they're like level four at this point so like you know just it's, it's, there's only one of her and going out in the woods and she she had other things she was focusing on maybe I'm saying she was, because there's other shit going on in these woods that the players didn't really get into yet, so. Um, but I don't think it came out that way. It was kind of more of the assumption of this girl is bad at her job because she she's sleeping around, which isn't true. Uh, it's just more of, like, I don't know. I feel like this is a problem in D&D, where, like, if you want the players to potentially latch onto it, I'm, I'm sure she would have ran into the satyr eventually and like you know had a, a hole to do and stuff but like if you want the players to kind of rescue and be the heroes that means like the npcs that are normally there to do the job are kind of seen as fuck-ups and that's kind of an unfortunate consequence of letting your players be the heroes so that was that was kind of an unfortunate thing but um yeah no she's not bad at her job because she sleeps around uh because the concept of virginity is stupid and she probably isn't into men anyway so she can lose her virginity in the traditional sense which is stupid but yeah um she she basically she's good at her job she's doing other things all right she's got other things she's trying to find them she would have found them eventually but the players got to do it first so you know she's not bad at her job <laughs> I feel like I'm just defending this poor person. <laughs> Whatever. So one other thing that was really cool in this episode was now that they're level four and Josh is two levels in cleric and two levels in fighter, he got his channel divinity, um, which basically means that he can craft up to any item worth a, or under 100 GP within an hour, You as long as you have the metal material you need. Um, everything else you don't need, you just need the metal material. And I really gave him control over like what this whole process would look like. And I really love how he described it. And he's just like, he basically creates a forge and has like the forge and honey with him and like the hive and there's like uh, bees everywhere. And then there's like celestial tools and let him craft things. I'm like, this is so, so cool. I love it. 
And it also was the setup for him making his next big creation, which is going to be an axe for Rowan. Um, which, you know, I think originally his plan was to make something for his brother and then make something for himself. But then between everything that had happened in the campaign, he just really wanted to make something for Rowan next, which um, I didn't really... I should ask Josh why he decided to do it that way. Um, I know <laughs> kind of a, an, a reason... Um, now is because he's like, oh, well, Rowan protects Nora, and that's good. So as he's doing that, though, the girls are picking flowers. And Sam, I really wanted to have something in here for Sam, and they happened to roll for it, uh, where they found a flower grove with these very unique-looking roses. Um, and she basically, you know, picked them. And I was kind of curious if she would. But yeah, so I wanted to have a little cool moment with Sam, you know, with her potion gathering and getting a cool ingredient. But beyond that, I also wanted to have some fairy mischief and shamelessly reference another myth. Uh, and this is the myth of Tam Lin. Um, so this myth is originally from Scotland. Um, and I think I originally heard a version of it from the overly sarcastic productions read who does mythology on their channel. Uh, she covered it. Um, and I, I looked into this myth and there's quite a few different versions of it. Uh, there's quite a few different song ballads of it. And overall, it's the story about a human that kind of got trapped by fairies and then is like a fairy himself that haunts this, this bit of woods known as Carter, Carter Hall. And uh, then we have Bonnie, Bonnie Jane, I think is her name. Uh, and she basically kind of gets involved with him. And uh, one of the, the things about the myth is it's somewhat, there's a lot of back and forth of like, is this, was this consensual? Was it not consensual? I prefer consensual version. I kind of like the idea of this, like, uh, this fae guy, this hot, sad fae guy being out in the woods and this girl's like, mm, every guy in my, <laughs> every guy in my dad's castle is, is boring. I'm going to go get me a hot elf boyfriend in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I find that entertaining. So um, if you want to hear a really beautiful version of the the song, because there, there was based off of a poem, but there's a couple different song versions of it. I actually really love this one by uh, Anais Mitchell and uh, Jefferson Hammer, um, where it's just called Tam Lynn. And uh, basically, it's it's them retelling the folk tale. And in case you didn't know who this was, uh, Anais Mitchell was the author or composer of the Hades Town musical. So if you like Hades Town, you should definitely check out this version of the song. It's so good. I love it. Love it so much. Um, but the one reason I like the idea of this is like I wanted to include more about like the Fae because they're. <sighs> The Fae are definitely human in a lot of ways, but they also are a little alien in some ways. And they definitely have this idea of things being in balance and having exchanges. So, like, you can't take something without giving something in return. And I think it was also a really good moment for Sam, too, to show off her tact in handling, like, a, a potentially difficult conversation. Because she didn't, she forgot that you're supposed to give before you take, uh, you know, this equivalent exchange, which is preached in their forest. So the fact that she just kind of carelessly picked a rose is very dangerous, but she managed to be clever and get out of it. Um, 
I also thought it was really cool that she asked about, like, you know, what what do you want? Like, and kind of like, what do you want out of the world? And was kind of interested why he was stuck in this grove. And it's, there might be reasons. There might be reasons or some other adventure that could tie into them releasing him. But he basically is kind of a being trapped in like a weird pocket dimension where like he is stuck between the material plane, the fey plane, and the ethereal plane. Like he's kind of just trapped in this area and it, it sucks. Like he, I won't say why he's in there necessarily. He kind of hinted at it, but like he, he is in a really shitty situation <laughs> and he's stuck. Now I will say that he's not completely like super noble. Like if, if somebody would have picked his flower that wasn't like a cute half-elf girl, like one of his own kind, he probably would have been more of a dick to him. And he definitely would have basically put a bane effect on them for the rest of the day, <laughs> unless they like returned the rose or something or gave something back. Um, but yeah, pissing off an archfey can definitely get you trapped in a pocket dimension. So remember that, children. If you're ever walking through the woods or if you're ever in front of a, a big archfey lord, uh, you know, don't don't pitch up, piss off somebody who has the ability to trap you somewhere like that. Um, but overall, it was a really fun moment between Sam and and this character. And also, I love all the stranger danger comments in the background and and Josh's rage. Like you you couldn't see you couldn't see it, but like Josh was sitting there fuming a little bit um, because obviously, like his it, it's being telegraphed a little bit. His character's kind of gotten a little bit of a a sweet spot for Nora. He's, he's got, he's, he fancies her a little bit. Um, so the fact that there's this, this like brooding elf boy coming in with his sad roses and like being like a little, a little bit sad, creepy, like, oh, maybe you can free me. Like, oh, he, he was so mad about it, but I'm such a shitster. <laughs> I knew that if she picked the roses and they had this interaction, he would get a little jealous. And that was kind of the point. I wanted to, like, light a fire under his ass to be like, here you go. Like, she's not just on hold for you. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta put those moves in. You gotta make moves. Um, I love Christy, though, later on in this episode where she had a very, very good conversation with Josh's Hans and Franz about looking for, uh, about the Nightingale, um, which is really funny because uh, I'm going to be getting into spoilers, but like she wasn't wrong. She was not wrong from where they currently were uh, and where Christie's character's village is from roughly. The direction she gave were not inaccurate. Like the Nightingale was southwest of them or southeast of them. I have to look at the map. But yeah, uh, the, the Sing Sweet Nightingale was an amazing, Amazing setup, though. Christy had some amazing comedy gold moments with her, her guest appearance. I love it so much. Kind of going back. Uh, so they, they, they camp next to this river for the night, and they realize that it's massive and it would be impossible to cross without, like, a boat. Um, and it's funny because I gave them a map. And I showed them that there would be a river, but they didn't think to ask for details about it. They just, I think, assumed, oh, it's a river. We can just walk across it. Or, like, it's going to be shallow. Nope, this is a big-ass river. And also, in the in the um, reason it is so big is because this is one of the borders between the Blooming Meadows and the Win and 
wind plains. And normally rivers and mountain ranges were good territory dividers for that because like, you know, it's hard to cross. So you couldn't just easily take an army across a massive river. So that's why it's a big river. Um, but yeah, they kind of get stuck and they kind of have to add a couple more days to their trip by traveling. Um, so the other thing that was cool about this night of camping though, was they split up the watches into a different pattern, um, with some new people around it. Cause Nora wanted to, and Hans and Franz did a watch together and it was kind of a good setup for like, um, what could be helpful with the, uh, enchanting the axe and josh originally was thinking about her speaking to it which is definitely part of it but then sam had the idea of incorporating this very special family heirloom uh you know into it and it's kind of a cool little setup moment for a really powerful moment later on in the series when they're actually crafting it when they get back to Feyen. But um, one other thing that's funny is they talked about how everything feels like it's happening at once. Um, and yeah, compared to what their characters were doing like a couple months ago, like, yeah, everything's everything's moving a lot quicker. But I kind of feel like that's what it feels like stepping into adulthood. You know, like when you're a kid, like when I when I lived when I, I lived with my parents till I got married because I went to call, I commuted to college and it was just easier to live at home and cheaper. Um, so even though when I was in college and I had various jobs and like, you know, was responsible for going to school and everything like that, I, I felt like I wasn't a hundred percent adulting cause I was, you know, I wasn't paying my own bills. I just lived at home with my parents. Um, but then when I got married, like the stress of doing everything on my own hit at once. Like I had to make sure that like car insurance was like completely set up on my own and paid for, or like signing a lease for an apartment or just anything like that. Keeping the house fully clean on my own and all of these just random, or, or even like transferring schools. Like I handled transferring schools completely on my own. And that was kind of stressful. And like it, it's weird how those moments happen where it's like, yeah, yeah, for convenience sake, like, all of a sudden shit's happening in the world for D&D, like, when your life was so boring before. That's part of adventure. But that certainly feels true to life as you get through those patches in life where just nothing happens and then it's just a shit storm of, like, either drama happening or just crazy big milestones happening. So one of the other really big things that happened in this episode that kind of sucked was originally right after the Seder fight, um, Andrew went home, which was really unfortunate. Like, I mean, he should have gone home like because he was sick. You could hear him coughing throughout the recording and he probably shouldn't have come at all <laughs> when I guilted him into it unintentionally. Um, cause I didn't realize how sick he was. He just kept being like, no, I feel a little awkward being there if I'm kind of like coughing and uh, everyone else was like, no, it's fine. Like we, I didn't, cause he'd been sick for like a week. I didn't think that he was still that sick. So I shouldn't have pressured him into coming, but basically, um, it kind of was unfortunate because we were trying to figure out ways to get Una more integrated with the group, you know, as not just the solo player who came in without like a family member. So she was kind of hoping that her and Hans and Franz could spend time together, like, tracking and hunting and everything. And it, it just got cut short because Andrew was sick and went home early. So what we ended up doing was um, they took that watch together. And then they both came over on a weeknight and <laughs> had that conversation with each other. 
Which is why Andrew didn't do his voice because he's like, I didn't do it for most of the episode because I couldn't do it in my, when I had a cold. So he just talked as himself. But it was it was a really good moment. Um, they both <laughs> they both were really worried about Lynn. Like, just how do we take care of this person? Um, she's she's kind of helpless. What do we do? Like, and how do we help her live in the world? Like, we can't take her with us all the way. But I think it shows to their uh. I don't want to say, like, probably parental tendencies. Like, both of them are trying to be leaders in their own way. So it kind of makes sense that they're both thinking about these things. Like, how do we keep this random person that we just adopted alive? But it was good. Um, It also was interesting because until this moment, like, you know, it always was presented that uh, Josh's Hans and Franz was the shyer one. Um, and the more socially awkward one. And then Andrews was like the confident, like, I'm going to get up and say what I want and do what I want. But it was kind of an interesting, vulnerable moment because he basically said that he considered his brother, Josh's Hans and Franz, the one working the forge, was always the one who attracted the girls because he wasn't as beat up and was not as, like, was more of a pretty boy. And I thought that was an interesting um, moment in character to kind of, like, let slip. Hmm. How to emotionally blackmail him with that later? That's the question every DM should ask. No, I'm kidding. I I, th- I thought it was a good it was a good little moment because normally you don't get to see uh, either one of them show their vulnerability, but sometimes it it drops. And I like those moments when characters kind of like let out their insecurities. Um, Una also dropped a bunch of stuff about her home and why she's so far away from the coast because the coast is basically a like eleven days via road. Um, to the sea, and then another three days by ocean to get to her island. So she's basically um, really far away from home and kind of been alone for a while. Um, And it explains why she's a little bit more like friends with everybody or why she wanted a familiar because she's she's friends with everybody, but she's not really friends with anyone um, close because she's so far away and kind of in her own separate little thing of secrets that she's keeping to keep her village safe. Um, And it's also why it's super funny that it comes up now, you know, that she kind of has these secrets because what happens next episode is one of her secrets gets revealed. (laughs) So I'm actually really happy they had this conversation before the, um, not the next step. Well, yeah, kind of actually in the next episode, the very end of the next episode, it comes up. So yeah, Um, also, Una was the only person in the party who wrote that they had a dead parent. Um, and, like, that's kind of a common trope in D&D is to have, like, characters with dead parents, but none of them did it. Like, Hans and Franz, as far as they know, their parents are still alive. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to say one way or another because they're not 100% sure. But, like, you know, their, their parents should be in the village, like, just doing their thing and they're exiled. But they don't know. And then um, Nora and Rowan's parents are definitely alive and well and at home. And, like, so Una was the only one who had a dead parent. And it was her mother who died heroically. And she wants to live up to her legacy. And I really, I really liked that for her backstory. Because I feel like a lot of times in fantasy novels, you will have that storyline for male characters where it's like, I got to live up to my heroic father's legend. Or even like if, if a parent died heroically, a lot of times, not not always, but a trope of it is definitely like 
the the father died, you know, fighting off the horde or doing something very, very heroic. Uh, and the mother maybe just died of illness or, you know, maybe saving her children. Um, but having, like, Una's mother die saving a bunch of people, like, in essentially, like, combat is not something you normally see. It's just not something you normally see where, like, it's a female character who wants to become their mother who was who was a warrior and, like, a combat hero. Uh, and I, I really like that. What do you mean? Of humans. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, man. I could tell, like, during that whole conversation, like, Andrew was trying to get her to open up and drop some things and let things slip, and he he did it, man. He just let her talk, and then he got he got some of those, like, hooks in there, like, that Una is definitely not fully human, which is pretty easily hinted at. Um, so it's kind of fun to just see, like, that as a setup, especially what happened, considering what happens next episode. Um, but yeah, uh, they're both kind of aspiring leaders. They have very different styles of leadership, and I would say that they're both very inexperienced in certain ways, but they complement each other. And I'm kind of excited to see their dynamic kind of uh, as, like, friends and, like, potentially, like, complementary opposites, like, as this as the game goes on. And, like, what will their finer... What will their final forms of being a leader look like? Um, and then it ended very, very sweet also with, like, Rowan and Lynn talking about being different. Um, you know, both being these very unique and odd races that kind of scare people. And I feel like that's a common thing in D&D. Um, and it's kind of one of the reasons why people like playing it. Like, I've seen so many jokes online about, like, oh, you're playing a tiefling or you're playing a rogue. You've got, like, daddy issues or whatever. And I, I think that there is some truth in that. Like, I think a lot of people who are drawn to things like Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy and nerdum, like, they're usually people that were bullied for some reasons. Um, and maybe they use this as a bit of escapism, but it also can be a place to, like try to discover parts of yourself. Like, I've seen quite a few positive stories where, like, tabletop RPGs, not just Dungeons & Dragons, Pathfinder, and all the other wonderful systems out there, but, like, being able to play these other characters kind of made it safer to explore other parts of their identity. Like, there's there's quite a few stories where, like, people who were... Um, LGBTQ kind of started coming to terms with their own like sexuality and and their own identity through playing Dungeons and Dragons because they felt like they could essentially put up a they could put on a little bit of a mask to explore that side of themselves where it wasn't fully them and then it helped them realize who they really were and the same is true for uh I've seen it for like there's there's a lot of people who are transgender who or or non-binary who they never fit in 100% with their one gender in real life. And so then when they got a chance to play in, in a game like this, they were like, hey, I can I can be a female or a male or somebody who um, is gender nonconforming and, like, explore this part of myself and then kind of find themselves. And I think that's kind of... I think their conversation just kind of alludes to that. Like, people who are different and navigate the world where they're socially isolated, you know, tabletop RPGs can kind of help with a lot of that. Um, they can help you build friends. They can help you explore parts of your personality that you're kind of scared to in real life. And I think that's really cool. 
Um, and then I guess ending, I guess on a on a sappy note, I loved the ending with the kazoo send off. I think we all still have our kazoos, um, and they're pretty wonderful. Like it was, it was such a thoughtful gift that Christy went out and bought everyone kazoos, and then we all like sang her off with them. It was it was a cool cool ending. One of my favorite endings of of the Guardians of Fahal with with that send off. Um, and I, I think that's a good place to end it there. I don't. Do I have my kazoo right here? I do have it. It's in my DM drawer. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Uh, if you really like us, uh, consider sharing us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're at the Westerverse. Um, or, you know, if you want to throw us some money uh, on Patreon, that would be really nice. It would help us be able to buy nicer equipment and hopefully make more episodes and more content for you guys to enjoy. If you got an extra dollar a month, it'd be great. We'd appreciate it. Um, but let me, let me do a send off. So I'll probably put the actual outro eventually, but I'll do pop goes the weasel and then I'll do the actual outro music. (laughs) Have a good one adventures. (laughs) 